1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, the podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkor, and more importantly today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ina Ilkama, who is Assistant Professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. We'll be talking about a brand new open access publication called The Play of the Feminine, Navratri in Kanchipuram. Ina, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Raj. It's, uh, very, I'm very excited to be here.
1: Yes, it's lovely having you, and um, it's uh, especially nice to see you again. I mean, we've we've collaborated some time ago, I think, on the Nine Nights volume some years ago. So clearly, you're very much still interested in the festival. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your interest in the festival and maybe the backstory for the book?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so the book is basically my, uh, my PhD project. Uh, I wrote a monograph, which I now have published uh, in book form. Um, I was interested in goddesses and goddess traditions um, and I already had a network in Tamil Nadu um, since I did my MA on the village goddess Mariamman and her uh, mythology then I visited a lot of Mariaman temples and other goddess temples in Tamil Nadu and many of these goddess temples celebrated Navaratri grandly I was there in the autumn, a great spectacle, uh, lots of people coming uh, many exciting and diverse rituals such as these um, enactments of the goddess's fight with a demon and um, wonderful elaborate themed alankaras which are decorations of the goddess um women and girls being worshiped as the goddess uh, and so on so i was intrigued by this um, by what was going on really um and um, one of these temples uh, is one of the temples that I write about in my book, one of these Mariaman temples. Uh, and here women's rituals were very prominent. Women participated in uh, bhakti rituals, processions, pujas, uh, so on. Um, and I also became familiar with this uh, Goli tradition, uh, a South Indian practice, which I guess I will elaborate on uh, later. And I was intrigued by how I mean, how the festival had this domestic side to it. So this Koldu is something you do at home Um, as well as uh, these temple rituals going on uh, for nine or ten days with huge celebrations. So that's how my interest was sparked. Uh, I wanted to know really what was going on uh, and to see if there was any connection between what happened in homes and what happened in the temples. And um, studying Navaratri uh, in Kanchipuram also allowed me to to do a project where I could combine uh, fieldwork with uh, looking at uh, Sanskrit texts as a Sanskrit uh, scholar. Um, So I also look at mythological uh, texts as well as ritual texts. but uh, yeah, the book is not really that textually oriented. Uh, I deal a lot with oral traditions as well. Um, so, the temple I just talked about, uh, which is called the Padavataman temple, it's not scripturally sanctioned, and uh, neither is this scholarly tradition. So, the Sanskrit texts then mainly pertain to uh, the Kamakshi temple, which is the second temple at that time talking about
1: in my book would you say a little bit we'll dive into the content but say a little bit about the methodology about the interplay of you know looking being both you know as you probably well know I'm a textual scholar I quite enjoy lived religion and I think I enjoy people so much I I use my ethnographic skills as a podcast host but <laughs> um Could you tell us about the interplay between um, religion on the ground and textual traditions? Uh, Is it common? Is it uncommon to sort of uh, marry the two and look at both? And what's that like for you in terms of being both a textualist and an ethnographer?
0: Well, I think until quite recent times, it has been quite uncommon. You know, anthropology is one discipline, and religious studies, which mainly has been focused on texts, is another. But the way I see it, I mean this. These fields are interconnected, and uh, it makes sense to to look at both whenever uh, that is possible. So, yeah, even though though I ended up maybe uh, maybe with a book which is a bit more anthropological uh, than textual, I, I think uh, I think the texts almost also illuminate what's going uh, on. Uh, on the ground uh, and it's important to to investigate
1: both yeah i, I mean i couldn't agree more i mean I, I wanted to hear your perspective on it but certainly it is relatively where in in this low-burning time of, of scholarly production it's fairly recent that we have um an integration of both but but there have been a number of of recent publications i think where we see more of an interplay between textual studies and what's happening on the ground. And and um how could they not be mutually illuminating, as you say? And yet, and I think just because you know, people have different temperaments. And if you're used to studying texts, I mean studying people might be alien to you. If you're used to studying people, you know, having your, your head stuck in Sanskrit grammar might be a little bit out of your 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 comfort zone, but but having both is great. And in my case, I I surprisingly found um that what I saw on the ground in terms of the ritual and the timing of the Navaratri ritual actually helped me to understand why the Devi Mahatmya was located where it was. It helped me to understand the, the Sanskritic canonization of the Devi Mahatmya and where it was located. And I have sort of a, a theory that has to do with the ritual timing of, of the actual festival on the ground. And it's it's really is a fascinating interplay, but I completely understand why certain scholars are geared towards one enterprise or the other. Now, tell us about tell us a bit about the distinction between these two temples, uh, the Kamakshi Temple and this other temple, and tell us a little bit about, you know, wh- how are they demarcated? What's what's different about them, overarchingly?
0: So the Kamakshi Temple is uh, an old temple, uh, a temple which is very well known in the area in Tamil Nadu. It houses. Uh, Country Puram's uh, primary goddess or prime deity, uh, Kamakshi. It's a Brahmin temple. Um, it's a temple that belongs to the Shrividya tradition, which means uh, um, it's a Vedika it's a Vedika tantric uh, temple uh, where the goddess is worshipped in in the form of a um, um, uh, yantra, the Shrividya Shrividya Shri yantra. And um, so Kamakshi has Brahmin priests, uh, her temple and her traditions are scripturally sanctioned. Um so, yeah, I spoke of, uh, of um, uh, that I have been looking at some of the texts. Uh, for instance, one text called the Lalitopakhyana, uh, which uh, narrates about uh, Kamakshi and her uh, Manifestations in Kanshiparan, how she is higher than Vishnu, higher than Shiva, who is also manifest there. But the other temple uh, is um, a temple of a village goddess, or a so-called village goddess, called uh, Padavatamman, who is then a form of And uh, This is a small local temple, which is of newer origin. It's from the 70s, um, but it's very, very popular. Uh, it draws a uh, huge crowd. Um, for its uh, celebrations, Um, and here uh, the goddess is, um, she's not part of the Sanskritic ritual tradition or Sanskritic mythological tradition, but she of course has a very rich oral mythological tradition surrounding her. So um, what was interesting was uh, investigating what could be called as the sort of same rituals uh, in these two temples which were enacted very d- differently for instance the goddess uh, the goddess's killing of the demon
1: so can you say a bit more about the the oral aspect of this as you say sort of non romantic temple um are there uh, particular myths that are that are well known among uh, among attendees, or tell us more about because I think you're uniquely poised because you have access to this tradition that doesn't exist in text. And so often we have the um we have the the bias that or or the conception that you know it starts with the text and then there's a tradition. But so often in the Indic world, the text actually is a condensation of an extant tradition, and you have access to a tradition that no one else has access to unless they go there and they study it so tell us a bit about this this oral culture if you will
0: yeah she's she's actually a very interesting um and goddess so um, her name Taman, um, relates to the place where she originated which is a place called Padaividu, which is uh, in northern Tamil Nadu and um, and she has this um I mean almost All manifestations of Mariamman relate to this one myth uh, in which she is beheaded. So this is a goddess who is worshipped in her temple uh, as a form, uh, as a head in the sanctum. So she's represented there either only as a head uh, or as an erect statue with a head in front of it. And this relates to her origin myth, which is very well known. where she gets decapitated by her son, uh, Parashurama. This is also known from Sanskrit sources. Um, but here, uh, the woman who is decapitated is known as Renuka. But Renuka then, uh, from the texts, become Mariamman uh, on the ground. <laughs> there are also some Renuka temples, but uh, but very often she is called Mariamman. Um, and she she's beheaded because she um, transgresses this sexual norm. She sees a Gandharva or something uh, who is making love in the water, and then she is beheaded. She loses her chastity. Uh, So she was originally a woman, an ordinary woman, married to a sage, sage Jamadagni, and then all these things happened. um, She got beheaded. Uh, And what's interesting is that in these local versions of the myth, this is not something which is in the Sanskrit sources, But uh, in the local renderings, uh, Renuka or Mariaman's head is then switched with a a non-Brahmin woman's head so that her head gets attached to a non-Brahmin body. And this is why she then merges into the ground with her non-Brahmin body. So the Brahmin head is only visible uh, and she's worshipped in the form of a head and then she becomes a goddess. Uh, who particularly helps, um, helps her devotees, I mean she can help with anything, but uh, in scholarly literature she has uh, this connection to uh, pox diseases and particularly chicken pox, so people very frequently go to her temples in the summer season to uh, To get rid of the chicken box.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating myth. It's not just a myth resulting from Brahmanization, but it's also a myth depicting <laughs> Brahmanization, as it were. And you know, I I, I recently collaborated with um uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Noor, who studies a regional Kerala um, a goddess tradition, Badrakali, Badrakali Mahatmya, and it's really fascinating to sort of tease out the extent to which. We see local tradition borrowing from Pandyanic tradition, or vice versa. And so, uh, do we even have a sense as to whether the Renuka myth comes first, or whether the Renuka myth is actually a Brahmanization of a local Mariama myth? It's, it's. I imagine that would be all conjecture at this point. But it's. Could you say a word about the extent yeah, to which one tradition borrows from the other?
0: I think that's not possible, really, to to uh, to figure out. Uh, what comes first? I mean, these things might have influenced each other. Um, but what, what's interesting is, I mean, this this myth is very much alive um, in the surroundings of the temple. I mean, people are aware of the story. They know it, they narrate it. And it's reflected there in her uh, image in the sanctum. Um, so this is her creation story. But then the myth of Mahisha, Mahisha Sura, and Durga is attached to her and so during Navaratri she then kills the demon Mahisha and takes the form of Durga and so, so of course these bits all relate to each other but in the case of Kamakshi uh, she kills another demon she has nothing to do with Mahisha Asura and here we see that this demon myth uh, is very fundamental it's uh, uh, I mean after Kamakshi has killed uh, the demon that she kills, which is called Bandasura, or Bandakasura. What she does is, uh, yeah, she settles in Kanchipuram and she asks the god to create the temple for her, the Kamakshi temple. Um, And then the ritual handbook uh, is uh, is created, which they use in the temple. Um, So, yeah, it's it's so interesting to see how these myths interplay with each other and what, what role they have uh, in, in the temples. That's really fascinating.
1: The... Yeah, C- clearly there's a, clearly, you know, as I've said this a number of times, you know, the best books are beginnings, right? The best books aren't endings, and clearly there are a number of threads uh, here that, that could that could well be developed further. Now the, the, the book, uh, for those listening, uh, is divided into two parts. The first part is, uh, you know, Navaratri myth and temples. I think we've touched on some of the themes there are in these temples. The second part is Navaratri at home. And the first uh, substantive chapter of part two is uh, something you mentioned in passing, uh, the Kolu. Tell us a bit about this, because there may be, um, certainly there, many of our listeners will be familiar with, you know, um, uh, uh, as, uh, India is home to a vibrant goddess tradition, even the, the autumnal goddess festival. But this is uh, a, a sort of a... a Relatively unique phenomenon that's that's so vibrant and yet outside of this particular context, I think few know what what Kolu is. So tell us about this.
0: Hmm. And it's also um, it's also a very interesting ritual. And um, I myself am very fond of this part of the book in particular, which deals with Kolu. Um, and it's interesting and fascinating. So um, the Kolu tradition uh, is a South Indian tradition. It's spelled as Kolu but pronounced as Goli. Uh, and basically it's a display of dolls, mainly clay dolls. And since they are made of clay, they are said to have some divinity attached to them. Uh, so these clay dolls are then displayed on steps, on nine steps, ideally, um, correlating to the nine nights of the Navaratri. And they may represent, um, I mean, mainly deities, but Almost anything. Uh, So, you have themes from stories, from mythological stories, which are depicted through these dolls. Um, You have rituals which are depicted, like weddings, processions, cricket matches. Uh, And you can also add to these displays with um, anything from paper to cardboard, cotton, uh, to personalize them. So, for instance, you could find uh, Himalaya scene with gods popping up from uh, cotton snow, uh, just to give an example. So all these dolls are then displayed uh, hierarchically on the steps uh, with deities on the top and um, human beings, saints, and so on, on the bottom. You can even have children's toys uh, on the floor. And the goddess is then usually installed among these dolls uh, in the form of a pot. She's invoked in this uh, pot. Uh, and women do this ritual. So women arrange the kolu, uh, and they invoke the goddess in the pot. Uh, and women also buy the dolls from the doll makers, and decide on any themes, and so on. And then you invite uh, people home during Navratri to watch this kolu, to sing for it, to chant for it, to recite Sanskrit shlokas for it, um, to eat, uh, receive gifts. And some families are very, very, very elaborate uh, on this uh, practice. So they have huge doll displays, which can make up the entire living room, uh, maybe even hallways. But other people have just started very recently, which is um, another interesting aspect of this, uh, because previously kali was um, particularly a brahmin practice or a high caste practice. And something I show and discuss is uh, how um, non-Brahmin families from a variety of caste backgrounds now start practicing Kalu, uh, and then how Kalu connects to sort of conspicuous consumption uh, and how middle class Hindus may use this ritual to uh, display their wealth uh, because uh, it's an unspoken rule that you have to you have to buy at least one new doll each year most people buy more so eventually you will end up with a huge collection it requires money you also need money to provide gifts to the visitors because there are certain things you then have to present the women who are coming uh, as uh, visitors and um, so and the homes uh, you know people come home to you to see this so the homes are opened up the homes are are on display uh, and in a sense, even become public. Some would um, some would compare their home to a temple once they had this golu there with the goddess installed. But I also show uh, how the ritual itself changes during this process. Uh, so for instance, I met a couple of families who would offer meat and alcohol to their and um, And in one home, which I describe uh, the female hosts Regularly becomes possessed by the goddess on the golu, so she she uses Navaratri and golu then as a, an occasion to um, speak prophecy to her visitors. So these are among uh, among some of the interesting aspects of these traditions. Uh, also, social commentary. If I can just say a couple of words about that, because you can you can use um, the golu to make displays of any kind and very often um, you see this in the media as well Uh, you can make themes which reflect uh, current events uh, like uh, organ donation uh, solar power um, and traffic problems in Chennai um, and very often these themes may reflect uh, recent events. So that when the Shabrimala case happened, for instance, where women uh, went to the Shabrimala temple in Kerala, where they previously were not allowed to enter, uh, then uh, people started making Shabrimala um, displays in their colleague, uh, Or when the chief minister Jaya Lalita uh, died, she died a few years back, then Jaya Lalita dolls, uh, the sale of these dolls, increased, for instance. So there are so many interesting uh, things or angles to to aspects of this Golu practice, which uh, I look into.
1: Fascinating. Is this a women's practice? Is this a women's space?
0: Yes, definitely. Um, So... Not necessarily, but very often, uh, women are the ones who um, put up the gollus, uh, do the rituals, and women also um, go from home to home and visit each other. And I think that I myself visited 50-60 uh, during my two periods of fieldwork, and I never visited a place where uh, there were males present unless they lived in the household themselves. So unless they were the husbands of the the women who who uh, had the COVID, uh, so definitely, um, but with a few excep- exceptions, uh, the priests of the Kamakshi temple, for instance, they were very eager to have a say in where the dolls uh, were going or the dolls' arrangements. Um, maybe it has to do with them being. Experts on decorating the goddess's image in the temples, maybe that's something I discuss. Uh, and I also met this very interesting or fascinating guy, a man uh, who was a Vishnu devotee who made or fashioned his own god dolls out of waste material. Um, so he was uh, he was interested also in arts and crafts which probably inspired his take on the gole um, and this was a called a one of a kind gole uh, usually people buy the dolls they don't necessarily make them uh, themselves um, but his gole also demonstrated um maybe some limitations to this practice since um he was he was very uh, he did it also he did it as a so, sort of social commentary um, environmental commentary using waste material uh, but by the Vaishnava community uh, it was not met uh, with much enthusiasm to make gods and particularly to make Vishnu out of wastes.
1: What surprised you or what struck you about this research
0: well uh maybe how flexible these rituals are and despite of lots of unwritten rules to how to to do the Kali practice and written rules on how to do temple practice and it's a lot of space to do variations in ritual and not one koldi was similar to another and actually the only thing which was present Everywhere, um, and now I speak of the Golu tradition, was this Tambulam to give a plate of gifts to the visitor. Uh, the gifts may vary, but that was the one thing which was the same in every home. Um, also in temples, when I did my fieldwork um, back in 2014, 2015, They had the tradition in the Kamakshi temple to to worship uh, altogether eight girls as the goddess. So they worship uh, girls and invoke Kamakshi on them. But uh, I've learned that now they have uh, 108 girl uh, puja in the Kamakshi temple. So things change, things develop. um, And that's interesting. And I... Also, um, got an eye opener on how to conceive of texts. Um, so, the texts were my starting point, and I came to Kanchipuram with a quite naive idea that the priests, uh, for instance, would um, know the texts well uh, or perform what was in the text. That um, uh, the priests I spoke to, they didn't have a Sanskrit text, so they had them memorized. They, um, they just had them in a different manner, so to say. Uh, and it became clear to me that a text for the priests was something else than a text for me or what I thought of as a text. So this research also broadened my understanding of uh, texts to include texts as embodied or texts as enacted or performative or more fluid uh, notions of texts so
1: fascinating yeah Yeah, it's it's really refreshing to hear your mark about um uh, the quote-unquote texts i mean part of my training i mean as you well know i have academic training and part of my training was actually part of uh, an extent oral lineage of teachings primarily on texts such as the bhagavad-gita and yoga sutras and so Every once in a while, I have an online school where you know I, I teach basically anybody who's interested, but every once in a while, there might be a very keen student who's very, very much interested in learning the Yoga Sutras, and I may take them on and share one-on-one exposition. And so often I get the comment, um, wow, I haven't seen this before, or where is this from, or which commentary is this from? And it's so challenging to communicate to a Western student in particular that, there's so much knowledge is preserved orally. It's not written down. It's not in a text. Mm. It, it was learned sort of, you know, person to person parampara, you know, from, from one to the other. And, and this is uh, I think this is a really, uh, I, I think it's an intriguing and perhaps even vexing idea that uh, there might be um, uh, canonized material, but canonized in a very different fashion where it's, Orally preserved and, and used day in and day out in a very different way, um, and also texts such as, for example, the Yoga Sutras. I mean, clearly they were composed for exegesis. They weren't clearly they weren't. Uh, sutric material isn't remotely standalone. So it 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 uh, as evidence from the actual sutras, it's it's meant to be used as a prop or as a starting point for commentary within tradition so i find it fascinating that you saw the same thing within the ritual context of the temples what, um what would you say you hope folks most take away from the book what are some key takeaways or ideas or you know what is the the, the work that you think the book is doing
0: well i hope that they will the readers will learn something about um, women's rituals um uh, but also yeah um uh, local vernacular traditions I mean, I feel that I do a lot in the book. So there's... uh... You do. (laughs) (laughs) There's something for everyone um, uh, in here. Um, And and the festival is, of course, a tremendously rich and very diverse festival, um, which I try to analyze as a celebration of of the goddess's powers in association with women um, and how women can tap into these powers. Um so, yeah, um, I, I think it will be be relevant for uh, scholars or students of um, festival cultures, uh, South Asian festival cultures, um, both vernacular and temple rituals, uh, women's studies, mythology. yeah,
1: Ritual studies, you name it. <laughs> um, so, of course, you know, one of my, my purpose for naive questions was going to be, so the play of the feminine, what does that mean? But I think at this point, we realize it's a bit of a pun, isn't it? It's about the feminine, divine, and also also the, the, the sphere of the, the, the earthly feminine. Um, just uh, maybe two more questions before we close for today. One is, um, is your sense that women have always been so robustly empowered in this space? Or is your sense that there's something about our changing times that's contributing to women's roles? and women's empowerment in these spaces?
0: Well, that's a bit difficult to answer since the study is, uh, of course, contemporary. Uh, But I think that the home might have provided this space for women uh, for a long time, but maybe it hasn't been that visible until now. I mean, women's rituals are not scripturally sanctioned. They're not part of the Sanskrit tradition. They have been transmitted orally. um, But this is about to change. Uh, I mean, you, you find You find these magazines describing rituals to do during Navaratri, for instance, um, so that these these non Brahmin families who, for instance, are starting up with Golu, they can consult these magazines now in writing uh, to get to know what to do, which for the Brahmins uh, was knowledge which was traditioned and no, I mean, transmitted um, from family member to family member. Uh, as part of their tradition so that is one uh, one change Um, and also you know homes are opened up more uh, now maybe than they were before also maybe social media plays in here that people are able to display these rituals that they do uh, in their homes through social media so things are definitely changing.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for indulging the conjecture. Of course, I often ask questions that are beyond anyone's radar, but they're, they're sort of fun. And I've said before that generalizations are not occupational hazards. They're actually assets on podcasts. Um, but this this idea, I, I, this, this resonates, this idea that it's not such that women are now, only now empowered in the home sphere, in the domestic sphere. I mean, just in terms of my own my own perspectives from reading and, and and also witnessing Hindu homes, particularly diasporic Hindu homes, it's such that the empowerment of women in on the home front is more visible, mm. and we we have more access to it. It's it's more, and also, um, you know, uh, uh, Golu or not, whether it's a a, a religious uh, phenomenon or or just a sort of a. Um, other facets of the home life, we have so much access to people's home lives thanks to to Facebook or, or, or social media where people will share what they're up to in their home sphere in a way curated, albeit, but they'll share we have access uh, via social media. So I think that really sounds apt, but that's a huge game changer in terms of uh, publicizing what has been going on perhaps behind in, in a more cloistered space uh, hitherto um perhaps the last question i'd like to ask is um could you say a little bit about what it was like coming into these spaces as um a researcher potentially an outsider you know i don't want to put words in your mouth but also potentially as an honored guest you know as a researcher as a westerner as a um you know what what was the reception like were there concerns that you know of being scrutinized and being studied or you know, what was it like for you in terms of your role as a researcher in these spaces?
0: Well, uh, people all people were very friendly. Um, when I went golu uh, jumping, which is the word for uh, going from home to home <laughs> watching golus, uh, i uh, I usually had a female uh, research assistant with me uh, who was Tamil. Um, and you could translate for me. Um, I speak only a little bit Tamil myself. Um, so uh, we usually showed up unannounced. Uh, but this is not uncommon during Navaratri and during Golu. I mean, people go uh, Goli hopping and you never know who may show, show up. So people gladly invited us in um, and gladly uh, spoke about uh, how they they spoke about their culture traditions, uh, how they uh, how they celebrated Navaratri, um, everybody was very open, um, and uh, the things. Uh, I mean, I had great help uh, bringing with me um, my research uh, assistant, uh, who could also explain um, to me um, the things that I uh, the things that I. Uh, I mean, all the stories in the Goliath, for instance, uh, which I didn't necessarily recognize um, which, wh- what was depicted there. She could explain everything to me. Um, so the Tamils are very friendly and I uh, felt welcome. And what was interesting was, uh, I think I I think I mentioned that it's common to sing in front of these goddess and recite for the goddess. So I often was invited to sing so I've uh, I've sung a lot of Norwegian folk songs and even the Norwegian national anthem in very many homes in Kanskipuram uh, for these uh, field works.
1: That's beautiful. <laughs> I can you imagine you singing Norwegian and it, there's just something so incredibly syncretic about uh, Indic traditions, Hindu traditions. It's sure, let's add some Norwegian to the mix. Why not?
0: <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, uh, uh, a final thought is there um are you continuing this work in some way what's what's next for you what's what are you working on now
0: well uh, i'm i'm working on writing a book in norwegian about hindu goddesses and goddess traditions uh, so i will most likely not be invited back to the podcast to promote that uh, but um, it's not much written on hinduism in uh, in norwegian we have a few introductory books um so I will use some of my experiences uh, and encounters with the goddesses in that book um, and we we have uh, we have a quite a huge Tamil diaspora here in Norway actually uh, just this uh, past summer um it opened uh, Norway's biggest Hindu temple opened, which is a Tamil temple, which is the first temple to be constructed as um, a, a Hindu temple a proper Hindu temple, so uh, Tamil architects designed the inside, uh, and um, Norwegian architects designed the outside. So I'm very eager to do some research there on the Tamil diaspora here, um, and maybe also uh, investigate how they celebrate uh, Navaratri. So we'll see. Um, and I also I work in the teacher education currently, um, teaching. Hinduism and also Buddhism and Sikhism to future uh RE teachers or religious education teachers. So I have uh I have a project um where I'm interested in in how Hinduism is being taught in the Norwegian school system. So yeah, a few things coming up.
1: That well, all sounds incredibly fascinating, and I can't help but muse that there's a there's one temple that I frequent from time to time. It happens to be a Tamil temple. It's not in Toronto proper. It's about 45 minutes away, uh, north of Toronto, and it's ancient. It's ancient by North American standards. Uh, it was it was built by by uh, Tamil immigrants, but this would have been the early 1980s. So I'm amusing to myself that this process is being that, that a similar process is happening right now where you are in Norway that happened in Toronto quite some time ago and and so it's it really is fascinating to study diaspora traditions um thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today
0: thanks for inviting me
1: for those listening uh we've been speaking with dr ina ilkama on the play of the feminine Ratri and Kanchipuram. It's open access so click click on the, the link in the podcast notes and you will have you'll be able to download uh the entire book and and have a read until next time keep well listening keep reading and keep contemplating the power of the feminine, take care.